if we thought more about our yearly assessment with our government that happens every April 15th, we'd probably act a little different with our work. We'd probably plan a little bit better. We'd probably organize our salary a little different. If we remembered, oh yeah, this happens every year. But at the beginning around the end of March or the beginning of April, we start to panic to realize, I got to turn my taxes in. And you're hoping and praying for a refund that they would assess you favorably, that they would say, no, we, uh, we took too much money, so here's it back. And we dread to hear, you owe us more money. This time of year, you know, makes me chuckle every once in a while because I had a short career in the uh, tax accounting realm when I graduated college as I pursued the CPA and realized the CPA is not for me. But I did enjoy that, that work and learning how to do taxes, oddly enough to say. But there's one particular moment I was sitting in the, the chair at my little desk listening to my boss for the past 30 minutes try to explain to our client why they owed taxes. Unfortunately, this, um, this, this, this client didn't think about the assessment that the government would have on, on their work. Every year, uh, year after year after year, they would normally get a refund. And this year they didn't. They actually owed the government a couple thousand dollars. And they're very upset because we did their taxes, we got all their documents, we put it together and presented it back to them and said, this is what the government says. They said, this cannot be true. This cannot be happening. This is not what happens every year. And my boss was trying to hold back laughter and say, well, you um, got a promotion of a very you know, large amount of money that bumped you up a couple tax brackets, which you make more money, meaning you pay more taxes, and you didn't plan according to this assessment that would come, and now you're, you're reaping your reward. Now, she was a lot more gentle in that language. She's trying to explain to them, but it could this conversation continued on for another 15 minutes because this client, this individual, this person failed to recognize that their work, their, their money would be assessed by a, a standard and they didn't plan accordingly their, their lives and they had to pay the consequences of that. We know every year, if you, if we, those who earn an income, and for those students in the room who are about to earn income, know that tax day is, is coming. Sure, you can get a final extension that will come, you know, that you can push it back to October 15th, but again, you might put off again what's going to happen. Because October 15th, you're going to realize, oh, I still got to pay those taxes or still do these taxes that uh, I pushed off a little bit more. As much as my, you know, my old accounting life fears, I mean, do my people know it's tax season coming up on Good Friday as we commemorate the, the death of Christ and the death of our funds? Mainly about Christ. A little tax joke for you. My greater fear is that we forget, as every individual in this room, that we will have an assessment done by God, believer and unbeliever. For the unbeliever in this room, just know that there is an assessment coming for you. You're going to stand before a, a great and holy and mighty God one day and give account for your life. You know, Jesus says this in Matthew 16, particularly in verse 25, that the Son of Man will return in the glory of his Father with the angels and repay each person according to what they have done. 
this great white throne judgment that we see revealed in Revelation is going to be on the unbeliever, and you're going to be repaid what you have done. Uh, you know, Hitler's punishment, Stalin's punishment is going to be completely different for your, from yours. As Pastor Hayden said last week, we like to be capitalists in the world, but communists in the afterlife, thinking that the punishment of hell is going to be the same for unbelievers and the rewards of heaven is going to be the same for believers. It's not. God's a just God and a fair God. It is going to give back according to what we have done. Now, don't hear me say that you, have to, you can work to earn your salvation. That is absolutely heretical, untrue. The work that, is, that has been done by Christ, that was, we are going to learn over this Easter weekend, as every, actually every week here at Compass, that the work is done, is paid for by Christ alone. And thankfully, as Christians, we all have a different judgment. For the unbeliever in the room, you have the great white throne to look forward to. And I don't want that for you. None of us want that for you. Christ doesn't want that for you. That's why he sent his son to die in your place so that you can find freedom in him and not pay the consequences that are due exactly for you. But my fear is also for Christians that we forget that we also too have a judgment one day. We like, we like the verses like in Revelation 22 of the heavens and new earth are going to come and there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Well, that comes after our Bema Seat judgment, where our work, as Pastor Hayden preached on last week in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, as he referenced 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that our, our work as Christians is going to be given to God and he's going to assess. Now, our salvation is paid for and done in Christ. That is the joy that we have. Now, the rewards that he wants to give us and, and give to us, that he promised that if you do things in my name, I want to reward you, my name being according to his will, not what we think is his will, but what is according to his will, he wants to reward, but he's going to take all of our work one day and burn it in front of us. And so the wood and straw and hay that we built on our foundation is going to burn up and there's going to be no reward and we're going to suffer loss. We're going to experience the pain of going, man, I could have done more. But the reward that is left, the precious stone, the gold, the thing that is left is that going to be our reward to us. And we're going to rejoice and enjoy that. And in eternity, enter in the new earth with God and enjoy that. But my fear is, is that you're forgetting that there is an assessment for every one of us in this room, unbeliever and believer alike. And I don't want you to have a rude awakening Neither does God, and this is why he had Paul and the Spirit write down these words to a church in ancient you know, Turkey, uh, at the church of Colossae, saying, you need to start thinking more eternally about the way that you work. This is all, again, everything, this is all culminating, this is coming from the context as we've been learning as a church of, of the book of Colossians. Of, ch of chapter 2, verse 8, that since we have received Christ, let's walk in him. And so with our work... Let's make sure we're walking in Christ in our work. As we did a series a couple weeks ago on our family, as God is flipping our, our families, our household upside down, God is flipping our work upside down. And this is also coming from the, the context of Colossians 3, verses 1 through 2, where since we have been raised with Christ, or the old self is dead, the new self is here, the, the one that has Christ in us is here now. Let us seek the things above, not just in your home, but also in your work. As Pastor Hayden preached on last week, the main thrust of the, the bond servant, the slave, and the, and the master is to work heartily for the Lord. Not for man, not for your prophet, but work heartily for the Lord. Now, 
And Paul gives another reason, a further addition, you can say, to help us understand why. It's found in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 25. As Pastor Hayden read it just now, we want to read it together. So turn to your Bibles to Colossians 3, verse 25. Paul is communicating to both Christian slaves and Christian masters. He's addressing Christians to help them work heartily for the Lord, to actually build on the foundation of Christ and earn the reward that he wants to give them, but also to have his glory be known throughout the earth. And for these slaves, as he's, he's telling these bond servants, these indentured servants, these, these slaves to say, work heartily for the Lord. And the people over there, your fellow co-bond servants, your fellow slaves, who think they're getting away with everything, who think they're getting away with their sloppy work, they're getting away with you know, poor performance, they're getting away with trying to manipulate the boss and get their favoritism from the Lord, don't worry. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Think about the long term. Think about the eternal uh, judgment that is coming. Also, in turn, to comf- not just to comfort the slaves, but also to address the masters at the church at the, at the church of Colossae. Say, masters, make sure you are treating your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Think of the eternal judgment on you as you are going to be assessed on how well you held your authority and how well you worked. So for Paul to communicate this and God to communicate this to the church in Colossae to remember that think eternally when it comes to everything, especially your work. And for you and me, we need to make sure, we need to remember that God in his judgment, he is fair. He is just. He is impartial. He does not show favoritism. And this should compel you and should compel me to work here and now, to work today, to work in this present age with the future in mind. To remember there is an assessment coming. I want to stand before God. And when he burns up the work that I've done, that what is left behind is precious and good and built on the foundation of Christ. So as your former tax accountant, my PSA to you, so don't forget your taxes are due in next week, this coming Friday, as your pastor, I want to remind you, you have an assessment coming one day before you enter into the presence of the Lord for, for Christians. As I mentioned earlier, I really wrestled trying to figure out who the wrongdoer is in verse 25. At first glance, I might thought, oh, it's the master. He's talking about the masters. That's what follows. But as I I wrestled more, I began to realize he's not talking about the masters. He's talking to the slave. Ephesians 6, the parallel passage to this, he's talking to masters in that context. So the wrongdoer being punished, if there's a wrong master, he's going to be paid back for what he's done. But in the context here, he's talking to slaves, but then I'm like, okay, wait, who is he talking about? He's talking to the slave to say, work heartily, you know, verses 23 and 24, working heartily for the Lord, not for a man, for the wrongdoer. This is someone that he's working with. The this, this slaves looking around at other slaves. This, the, the slaves that have the master's ear, the master's favor, earning the extra bonus, getting the extra vacation time, getting the promotion that they want and think they deserve. But instead of looking around and seeing people get away with poor performance, with sloppy work, lying, manipulating, trying to get the Christian in trouble for what they believe in, 
to go outside the means of the structure of the, of the company and the rules set to, to earn their way up, to earn the extra, extra cash that the Christian, the slave, could have used. What Paul is trying to encourage these slaves is say, don't forget, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. This person who's actively unjust, is actively unrighteous, will experience something on the basis of what they have done. For there is no partiality with who? Who is he talking about? Well, God. God shows no partiality. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 to 18. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. We pray that we have very impartial inspectors on our building, that we don't have to try to bribe them to pass our coding inspection, which we won't do. but we're hoping the people that have authority, for us as a church, these inspectors hold the authority to say yes or no, you cannot enter that building. For the slave, for their masters to say, don't worry, the master, master's God almighty, the king of the universe, he is, shows no partiality to anyone. He is fair and just, so trust him. We might be afraid that maybe some coworkers of, our, of ours or neighbors or people might get away with it, even though we might try to say, hey, I, I'm trying to use the rules in the company to, to, to correct the wrong done. I'm trying to use the law of the city of New Braunfels, the state of Texas, the U.S. government to, to undo the wrong this person is trying to do. But God's saying, don't worry, even if they think they got away with it, they didn't. So trust in my perfect justice. So write that down for point number one for us today as we approach our work with the eternal mindset to make sure that we trust in God's perfect justice. This is all dependent on how much we believe in God's word, how much we trust in God's promises. If I told you that I have a box of a million dollars in cash and the first four people after service to come up to me have an opportunity to win a million dollars and all I have to do is be the last person to take your hand off this box, would you do it? Would you go over to my house and stand there for probably days at a time, skipping meals, skipping the bathroom, skipping sleep, hoping that I'd fulfill my word that this is actually real a million dollars in cash and going, well, this is something kind of dumb, but okay. You wouldn't trust me. First off, I'm a pastor. I don't make a million dollars. <laughs> Secondly, we trust in the people who actually have it in order for them to give it. And also the reputation behind, the reput- reputation behind me to say, sure, I'm going to make you do this. It would be bizarre and weird. And if I ever say that, don't believe me, please. But if you know a you know, famous you know, YouTuber who's worth millions of dollars in actuality, and his four friends believe him, they'll actually do it. And that's really happened. You can look it online. The last one to remove their hand won a million dollars. They saw it in cash right there. They believed their friend's word, and they stood there for 36 hours straight, hoping that they'd be the one that stand the, the last. They trusted their friend and did something really bizarre. And when God's saying, well, I'm not going to make you do really bizarre things like that, but you trust me to work heartily for me and trust that I will take care of the injustice that is happening around you. 
Do you trust me when I say, or as a reference early Matthew 16, that I will repay each person according to what they have done? And furthermore, the implication is he's taking care of them. He's also going to take care of us. So do we believe the words like in 1 Corinthians 3.13 that our work will be manifest on the day, the capital D day, judgment day, at the Bema seat for Christians, that it will be disclosed for us to see. And there will be a testing to see what work we have done. Do we believe God's word that he will fulfill that? If we truly believe that God has a perfect justice coming, the way that we approach our work will change. Instead of being distracted about the task over here when we need to be going this direction by working heartily for the Lord, we, instead of being focused and saying, how can, I, how can I fix it? We're going to say, you know what, God? I've done everything I can. I'm going to be prayerfully approaching you. I'm not going to take matters in my own hands. As much as we think we'd never become a vigilante. I think a lot of us would if we have the opportunity. As a culture, we love vigilantes. We love Batman. We love these superheroes who go outside the law to end justice because the, the corrupt police can't do anything. Now, we don't go comical, but I think we believe that a little bit deep down. Let me prove it to you. How, much, how many of you wish that you were a police officer for just 15 minutes when you're driving, someone cuts you off, gives you the bird, speeds past everyone, and you're like, I wish I just pulled this person over and delivered justice. 20 years minimum in prison, and some money back for my anger. We want to take matters into our own hands, and God's saying, don't, think, don't worry, I, I saw it too, and I will, re I will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Instead, we see, when we, take our, we don't take matters into our hands, begin to realize, oh no, it's already in God's hands. You're going to have a lot of a homework assignment this, this sermon, just FYI. Apart from the application questions, you have a lot of scripture to read. Because we are at Compass Bible Church, we, we turn to the Bible. Write down Psalm 73. This week, read Psalm, Psalm 73 in its entirety. It's only 28 verses long. Here, here is a psalm from the author who in this moment almost stumbles, he almost slips, he almost sins, not trusting God. Because he's looking at the arrogant. He's looking at the prosperity of the wicked. He's seeing that they're, they're comfortable, they're posh, they have everything they want, and they're getting it illegally, they're getting it wrongly, and they're mocking God. They even say, how can God know? I'm getting away with it. In verse 11, and this, and this author is like, in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence because I suffer every morning, every day. I'm the one suffering. I'm looking at my coworker who's doing an illegal job. I'm looking at my neighbor who's doing things kind of sketchily and they're getting away with it. I try to turn to the authorities. I try to report them to my manager. I try to report them to the police. I try to report them to the HOA and said, they're doing something wrong. <laughs> and the authority goes, uh, I'm just, go away. In the lowest moment, this author, experiencing things we experience even today, says, even when I think about this, I'm, I'm burdened until I go into the sanctuary of the Lord and I discern their end. He remembers the eternal promise that no one's going to get away with any injustice, that God will repay and he finds his comfort instead of being distracted about how, how he can take matters into his own hands. Instead, he finds comfort 
in God's strength, in God's refuge, to take care of it, and to focus on his work at hand. To make sure that we have this eternal mindset with our work as we are trusting in the justice of God, we cannot forget about our own final appraisal, our own final examination from God. For the negative, it's 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 5, where Paul is you know, communicating to the Corinthian church. They say, hey, don't forget, God is a judge over me, not, not you. And he will bring to the light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So the thing that your, your coworker thinks they're kind of hiding from the accounting books will be made manifest into the light. The things that you are trying to hide will be made manifest in the light. And even furthermore, as the word of God, Hebrews 4, is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the heart, the heart motivation is going to be revealed. So them saying, I donated to charity because I just love people. It's like, no, you're just doing it for your own selfish gain, but also your heart. The reasons why you do things is going to be exposed on the day. And furthermore, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Commendation, not condemnation, commendation. So. Make the point further in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. Those who sow in the flesh will reap corruption, but those who sow in the Spirit will, uh, will reap eternal life. So let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, if, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So we will reap the consequences of what we have done wrongly built on the foundation of ourselves. Thankfully, our eternity is taken care of. Praise God. That's where we can find our hope and comfort because we know we're still not perfect. God is continually making us and conforming us in his image. And one day we will be perfect in the day of glorification with our new, new bodies in the resurrection. But until that time, God is changing us and molding us. And we're not going to be imperfect. He's like, hey, I'm going to take care of that. But I also want to take care of the good that you're doing in my name. I want to reward you. I want to bless you. So when you're working if it's even your occupational job or how you work here at the church and the way that you serve or the way that you, you work to make sure your, your home and your neighborhood is, is kept up or even just your own self, the way that you work on your own, your own body, taking care of your own self, all that work can be done for the Lord. And the question is, is it? In order for that work to be done for the Lord, you need to make sure that we're focusing on the mission to represent Christ. The way that we conduct our work for ourselves and taking care of our bodies or the work that we do to take care of our homes or the work that we do to take care of this church or the work that we do and the, the, work, the, the, the paychecks that we earn, the occupations that we have, all of it can be is done for the Lord. It can represent God. As 2 Corinthians 5.20 talks about, we are ambassadors of Christ. So when you became a Christian, when you turned from your sins, placed your trust in Christ, and following after God, your life is no longer about the paycheck. Your life is no longer about your savings. Sure, you should earn money so you can pay your bills and should save because it's a good steward thing to do, but even in your saving, it needs to be done for the Lord. In the way that you work, you are supposed to be an ambassador of Christ. Your mission is no longer to build up your kingdom here on earth. Your, your mission now is to build up the kingdom of God, to seek first his kingdom, Matthew 6. By what? Matthew, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Holding on to the mission of the reconciliation of God. 
The forgiveness of sins that Christ offers is now your mission and my mission when we are Christians. So when we go to, to work, if it's a tax accountant or construction or whatever it is, if it's a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is, all that work, you are representing Christ. This is for yourself as an audience, but also for your audience for your kids and your, your coworkers and even the authorities, your bosses over you. Make it your mission. If you truly do trust that God, if you do truly trust in God's final justice, we will work in a way that wants to advance the gospel. So let's make sure our work is being served to advance the gospel of Christ. The way that we work, as Pastor Hayden preached on, on, on last week, is to try to build up God's reputation for others to see. And take comfort. that As we do this, God will reward the good that we're doing for his name. And also take comfort that those who think they're getting away with it are not. And to continue to comfort the slaves, but also to bring in the other party, the masters, Paul has you know, these words in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. These words are like secondarily comforting the slaves, saying, hey, I'm going to talk to your masters right now to make sure they're, they're doing what is right. But also masters, you have Christian masters in the church saying, hey, you need to make sure masters treat your bond servants, your slaves, justly and fairly. In order to really understand the Roman slavery culture, I refer back to you to the last week's Compass Equip podcast, or even last week's sermon. But the focus is not going to be necessarily on the, the justice and fairness. That's easily it's just explained like this, doing anything that's in accordance to God's will. The focus is the word treat. Masters, treat. Another way to say it, if you have another translation, you can see grant or to give, to give justice, to give fairness to your slaves. This verb, if you have a Greek lexicon, is it going to be, it's a verb, obviously, but it's an imperative. So the masters are commanded to do this. They must do this. We'll get to why in a second. It's a present verb. It needs to be actively happening in the master's lives. But it's a middle verb. It's passive and active. Meaning the, the masters are receiving justice and fairness and must give justice and fairness. And so what God is, through Paul, is trying to communicate is, hey, masters, you have received justice and fairness from me. I am a just and fair God. I show no partiality. You must in turn now go and presently, actively give justice and fairness to your servants. So for us today, if you hold any type of authority, if it's authority over your home as a husband or as parents over your children, authority within your work or even school, you might be the team lead of a group project for school or work, you might be a manager, or you might be the CEO, you might be the president, you might be the owner. Regardless of what authority you may have, all of us have some element of authority in our lives. We need to make sure that we are being just and fair. For what reason? Just for reasons? No. Because that's how God is. And we're created in his image. And we are, we are being redeemed in his image. Being made back into his, the image of the, of the son, Jesus Christ, to represent him rightly. 
So masters are supposed to treat their slaves justly and fairly because they are, they are supposed to be the representation of the authority of God. As parents represents, represent God's authority to children, the masters represent God's authority over the, over the sponsor, if it's over the slaves. If you have any authority in your life, you represent God. So what God wants you to do is, Matthew seven twelve says, do unto others... Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Essentially, you can write this down for point number two. Treat others how God wants you to treat them. The reason why I put God is because God is the, is the perfect, impartial master. We're not perfect. So sometimes what we want, what we want to be done to us is not necessarily what God wants. So make sure that we are turning to what God has to say. We're turning to his word to say, God, how do you want me to treat this person? When my enemy attacks me, what do I do? When my enemy is hungry, I feed them. If my enemy is thirsty, I give him something to drink. When I'm reviled, I do not revile in return. When I'm persecuted, I don't persecute back. Did I just make that up? No. That's what God has instructed for us. So ultimately, for the masters, for people who in here who have authority, but this is a, a universal principle for us all, so we're all, we all have to do this, is to make sure as we have been treated by God, we need to treat others. At first John, as 1 John 4.11, I'm going to write that down, 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Masters, people within this room have authority. You have been loved by God. You also need to turn around and love others. Husbands, you've been loved by God. You need to love your wives. Wives, you've been loved by God. You need to love your husbands. Parents, you've been loved by God. You need to love your kids. Everyone in this room, God has loved you. You need to love your neighbor. God has loved you. You need to love your boss. God has loved you. You need to love your employees. If we, those who have authority, have been gifted authority by God, Make sure that we, we do it correctly. We would create a just and fair and harmonious realm, essentially. Like my second grade teacher, Mrs. Hunziker. The girls in Mrs. Hunziker class, my second grade class, hated Mrs. Hunziker. The boys in the class loved Mrs. Hunziker. It wasn't because we got fair treat, special treatment, excuse me, we weren't, you know, given more than anyone usual. We weren't, so not we were, we didn't get away with sin. No, it's because for the first time in our long schooling from first grade and kindergarten, the girls couldn't get away with it. You know, as these, you know, cute little first grade kindergarten, you know, girls were when I was in the first grade, they were just manipulative, <laughs> a little depraved girls. It was funny because they would always get the guys in trouble. We would get in trouble for our own stuff. All of a sudden, we're getting in trouble for their stuff. The te they would convince the teacher, no, 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 it was, it was the boys, and the, the, the teacher would believe the girls, and so we're getting punished in, the, on, you know, in our long years of first grade and, and kindergarten. But also, when they were rewarded, they would ask for more, like, can, can I have a, a little bit more? Like, okay, here's a little bit more. And then I'd try it, like, young man, be content for what you have now but not in Mrs. Hunziker's class. If you did wrong, no matter if you're a boy, if you're a girl, if you're poor or rich, 
you got the punishment that fit the crime. And if you did good, you were rewarded for the gift that was due to you. And these poor little girls were trying so hard to get out of trouble that they got themselves more into trouble. And they tried to get more, they received more blessing than, than they, they, they ought. And for the first time in my long schooling career in the second grade, the boys finally felt we are in a fair classroom. I'm taking my punishment because I misbehave. I know that she will get punished too. I have my reward, but I know she will get the exact reward that she is due. And talk about how to control and tame second, second grade boys. Create fairness and justice in your realm. Because we behaved ourselves. Knowing that one, we were going to get the punishment due. But two, we knew everyone else would too as well. So, for all of us in the room, especially those who have authority, the questions we have to ask are, like, is, is my work above reproach? Does my work represent who God is? And to help you do this, I don't want you to do this. This is one of the worst counseling advice you can give. You really need to examine yourself. The reason why is, what does the Bible say? The Bible says our heart is wicked. We can't trust our heart. We're going to make every excuse in the book to justify our actions. So don't search your heart. Take a step back, open your Bible, and pray to God and say, God, search my heart. You need to have Psalm 139, 23, and 24 somewhere where you can see it all the time. If it's on your desk at work, if it's on your phone, if it's in the bathroom mirror, because it says this, search me, O God. God, you search me and you know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The things that people, you, you cannot know my heart and thoughts. Only God does. And see if there's any grievous weight in me and lead me to the way of everlasting. In order, to really, in order for us to really assess ourselves, we need to turn to God and say, hey, God, I need a quick assessment right now. Show my heart and my mind right now. I'm in conflict with my, my spouse. I'm in conflict with my kids. I'm in conflict at work. My boss is unreasonable. My employees are unreasonable. Search me, God. And reveal to me my sin. And give me the strength to repent and follow the way that is everlasting, that glorifies you. If we did that more often, how much would our work begin to become a little bit more harmonious if we first took the log out of our own eye and asked God to examine us? Secondly, especially those who have authority in this room, are we giving justice fairly? What I mean by that is when, when you, the masters, Paul says, hey, do, deal with your slaves fairly and justly. If your slave disobeys, then yes, punish them. If they did something wrong, yeah, punish them. Make sure the punishment fits the crime. Don't go above and beyond. But if they do something good, reward them. Reward those who are doing things rightly. Don't show favoritism. So the question for us is, do we represent God in this? Do I judge fairly? Like Leviticus 19, 19 verse 15. We're not supposed to do injustice in court. Well, this is for Israel when they were, they were the nation for Moses as they were preparing to be a nation in the promised land. You should not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Don't show favoritism to the poor because you feel bad and don't show favoritism to the rich because they can get you stuff. But instead, be righteous. So the question is, are we righteous in the way that we conduct ourselves in the, with the interactions of, of the people around us? Furthermore, questions we need to ask to make sure are we treating people rightly is, do I show favoritism? Do I show unjust favoritism to people? Do I look at some people to go, ooh, or do you see other people go, I want to hang out with that person? I want you to read this week, James 2, verses 1 through 7. 
If you know the book of James, he does not mince words. You think I'm aggressive, read the book of James. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you, the, the faith, no, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man wearing gold ring and fine clothing comes into the, your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, go stand over there, or hey, you can sit at my feet, they smell. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When you and I show favoritism, unjust favoritism to, one, to other people over others, we have evil thoughts. We have to think about that. Those are thoughts because God doesn't show partiality. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter where you come from. God said, I can still save you. I don't, Jew or Gentile, there's nothing more. I, I can save anyone. So why do we show partiality? Why do we favor, show favoritism to one boss over the other when you treat them a little bit better? Or to other employees to go, well, you know, I, we like the same stuff, so I'm going to show you a little favoritism over here and help you get the promotion, even though the person over here is actually more justly fit to get the promotion. Now, there is a difference I do need to clarify between what we talked about the last couple weeks with the household. In the household, there's God, then the spouse, and then the kids. I'm not showing favoritism because I love my wife more than my, my son. I'm commanded to. I'm supposed to. My wife is going to, I'm going to live with my wife longer than, than my son. My son, hopefully one day will get married and leave my house and I'm back with my wife. So that's why God has ordered things in a certain way. But I'm supposed to treat them fairly, treat them justly. And your work, you have authority. You have the CEOs and managers and team leads above in, in the place now, that is not showing favoritism, that's just showing order. But the way that you treat one another, that's going to really show, do I show favoritism? Am I hindering my witness? In order for us to work with an eternal mindset in mind as we, we treat others according to the way God wants us to, to, be, you know, to treat them, we need to remember two more things. One, we need to remember that how we've been treated by God. If you're a Christian, you understand the truth. That before you knew Christ, you were an enemy of God. You did everything against God. You wanted to be God of your own life. You wanted to turn to yourself and turn against him. As Romans 5, 10 through 11 puts it down, you were enemies against the king. But what did he do? You were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You were brought into right relationship because of what Jesus did. So as you and I were running around as disobedient, manipulative, second grade adults, God showed patience, waiting for the right moment to draw you to him. God showed you grace, unmerited favor, to grant you the opportunity, even though you and I deserve the punishment of hell, say, I will grant you a gift of everlasting life with me. As we were enemies at one point, we were being made righteous and reconciled to God. So in turn, even if, especially those in authority in this sermon, but everyone in this room, we need to treat everyone as we've been treated by God. So we need to make sure that we are patient towards one another, that we are gracious towards one another, that we are loving 
abounding in steadfast love towards one another. For another homework assignment, I want you to write down Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Matthew 18, 23 to 35. When we fail to represent God well, when we fail to follow his direction, we begin to look like the unforgiving servant. But the final thing for us to remember in order for us to treat others rightly so that we can work in a way today, here and now, either as an employee or the one in authority, we need to make sure what God can do through our work. What can God do through our work? And don't think short term. You know, God can do lots of, you know, we worked yesterday at the, the building. We can get the building ready. And that's not the work we're talking about. I'm talking about the eternal work. The work like in Matthew 5, 16. You know, for us as Christians, we're supposed to work in a way, work heartily for the Lord so that we shine bright, shine bright into a dark and crooked generation so that people can see not us and go, look at me. No, to see us and to see God in us so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So the way that you work, the way that you either delegate with the authority, the way that you work as the employee needs to be in a way that glorifies God. So when unbelievers in your workplace, in your neighborhood, or even in your home may see you're frustratingly different. And it's good. I want it to be bad. I want to be mad at it. But the more I think about it, it's good. Why? Why? And you can say, well, it's because I work heartily for the Lord because he gave his son in my place to redeem me, to make me right before God, and I work for him. Do you want to know more about the forgiveness of sins that he offers? Furthermore, as we are in a more secular culture, even though within the Bible, but we are still in a secular culture here in the hill country of Texas, we have lots of non-Christians looking at us. And as Peter tried to encourage the exiles dispersed throughout the Roman Empire in 1 Peter 2.12, he says, keep your conduct, keep your work among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. The implications is this. If we work in a way that is focused on giving God the glory, and we're treating other people the way that God wants us to treat them, because we remember how God treated us, and we want to express that love to others, People will see God in you. Think about that. Isn't that what we want? For people to see God in us, not for our sake, but for theirs, to show that God is real. And this real God wants to change your life. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants you to no longer be a slave to sin, instead to be a slave to righteousness, to be a, have eternal life with him instead of eternal life in damnation. He wants this for you. So let's live it out. Let's live out the gospel that we proclaim that we have in us. But we have to remember this final fact. This is the final fact that Paul wanted to give to the masters and to the listening slaves. And this is what God wants us to hear right now at the end of verse one of chapter four. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The master, remember you have a master. Slave, you already know you have a master. Don't forget you already have a master. Now we can bring in all the biblical texts in the world, which will still prove this point. But to simplify it, to show you how simple this concept is that Paul's trying to relay, this isn't something that's ethereal, that you need a seminary degree in, you need to read a giant book of systematic theology, you just need to know Greek, which you need to go to school for. 
But these people who understood these words that Paul was using would have instantly understood this truth that masters have a master in heaven. Let me prove it to you real quick. It's going to be a fun little study for you. You can share this at your next party. Go back to Colossians 3, verse 22. I want you to either underline in your Bibles or highlight or on your tablet on your Bibles every time I say two Greek words. The first Greek word is, what's the Greek word for slavery? Doulos. All right, there we go. Doulos is slave. Now, the Greek word for master is kurios. So every time I say doulos and kurios, I want you to underline this word because it's, it's going to help you that this concept is not something that we need to grab from other texts. It's just simply right before our eyes. So verse 22, let's start off. Douloi, which is another form of doulos, bond service, under, underline that. Obey in everything those who are your earthly kurios, masters. Okay, so good so far. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the kurion, the master. But your Bible says Lord. That's the point. That's the same word, same concept. As you're serving your earthly Lord, you need to serve the Lord. As you're serving your earthly master, you need to serve the heavenly master. Whatever you do, work hardly for the kurio, the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the kuriu, the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the kuriu, Christ, the Lord, the master Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality. Kurioi, masters, chuchadulas, bondservants, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a kurion in heaven. The reason why I did this is not so that you can sound really smart the next Easter party you go to with your family. The purpose is this, to show that it is abundantly clear for masters, but for all of us, that we all have a master in heaven. And that should humble us. Instead of thinking that we're proud, we should say, no, God, you're the king. It means we have to have a proper perspective. So write that down for point number three. Maintain a proper, humble perspective. Almost every culture throughout world history understood the dangers of pride. We understand it as Christians, you know, God opposes the proud. But even pagan Romans understood this. As we celebrate, you know, sport championships, the big parade, the, the Romans would do the same. Except for the, the coaches and athletes, it would be the, the generals. They would do these things called a triumph. They would have a big parade and a, and a big day celebration, or depending who you were, like Julius Caesar, Octavian, or, or Pompey, your, your, your uh, triumphs were like days long, where you are dressed up in your, in your best, you have your army before you, they're marching through the crowd, they're cheering you on, you got confetti flowing down, and you are representing as the general, the god of gods, Jupiter. You are a deity in that moment, and you're proud in your chariot, standing in this pose, and this is what they would do. But here's the irony. A lot of sources say that this would happen, that the irony would be a slave, funny enough, a slave would be behind them as they're standing up in their just royal robes and just soaking in the praises of their military conquests, thinking that they're God. The slave would be behind them to whisper, remember you are mortal. Remember you are mortal. So even for a pagan culture like the Roman Empire, for them to recognize that there's a humbling coming for those who are proud. Now, thankfully, we have the totality of Scripture to show that it's God who's going to be doing the humbling. 
And the reason why is that as the, the generals, the authorities, the, the masters to the slave, to the, to the managers, the CEOs, to the employee, authority is supposed to be represented rightly. As I referenced earlier, Psalm 145, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is good to all. That's how the authority is supposed to be represented. And if we don't do that, we should be afraid. I want you to jot down two references, Daniel 4, 30 and 33. Daniel 4, verses 30 to 33, where you're going to see a king, a king of kings at the time, Nebuchadnezzar of the, of the Babylonian Empire, being humbled by God because of his pride. The next one is Acts chapter 12, verses 21 to 24. Acts 12, 21 to 24. For Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, his humbling was become insane. He wandered around and instead of being with people, he was on all fours with the animals for seven years. And then God sparingly helped him become sane. And then in that moment, he glorified God. But for Herod, not Herod of the birth of Jesus, but Herod after the life of Jesus, in Acts chapter 12, put on his royal robes and sat upon the throne. And people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of man. And here he is saying, I am, I am God. Well, his judgment was a little more swift. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down dead because he did not give, glory to the, uh, give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. We need to remember that this master that we have is a terrifyingly powerful master. And that's a good thing, by the way. I mean, why would we even pray to a, a master or a God who cannot get permits cleared for a building if he wasn't powerful? Why would we pray to a God who, who, who stays dead? Instead, we have a God who defeated death. He crushed the head of the serpent, rose from the dead, and now has the keys to death in Hades. Now, that is a terrifyingly powerful God, but isn't that a good thing for us Christians? So even though you hold authority, you might have no authority, praise the Lord that we have a powerful master that we can turn to and revere and emulate. But furthermore, we have a master who's a servant master. We see this in John 13 when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. He says, I've done this to you, you now need to do to one another. I am now modeling what a great leader is supposed to look like. Or furthermore, in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45, the greatest among us is not, supposed, he's not going to be the one who's the natural born leader. It's not going to be the one who has all the money and power and weapons in the world. The greatest leader in God's eyes, the greatest master who's the servant to all. So do you, if you have authority within your work or in your home, do you rule in a way that is a servant leader? And as an employee, do you even, are you a servant to one another? And finally, as we keeping this humble perspective, we, we can always know that we can turn to a loving, merciful master. This terrifyingly awesome master who is going to bring eternal and final judgment is merciful and wants to show compassion because he is compassionate. Second Peter 3, 9, he's patient towards us, not wishing that we should perish, but instead reach repentance. Is that amazing? God was patient for me for 20 years while I ran around and rebelled and sinned against him, trampled on his blood. And he's patient towards me and drew me in and saved me. 
If, you have been, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, he's done the same for you. And if you have not, he's being patient with you right now. You're alive. You're not like King Herod and dead, being eaten by worms. You're alive. So if yet to follow Christ, do it. He wants to offer forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How amazing is this powerful God? He's so loving and merciful. He is mighty and strong and terrifying, but he's loving and merciful and compassionate. So this is why we need to have a humble perspective as we work with one another. But this is why we need to always constantly turn to him. If we have authority in our work or have no authority in our work, we can still turn to him who is merciful. And I love the, the song choice for this, this week for worship because it, it reminds me of Luke 23, verse 34. This is how merciful, this is how compassionate this God is. While he is on the cross, naked, ripped apart, experiencing the, the physical punishment from people, but experiencing the eternal wrath of God on our sins in that moment, people were mocking him. The people next to him were mocking him. There's people below him tearing up his clothes and casting lots and making fun of him saying, hey, why don't you just save yourself? And what does Jesus say? God, I really like a thunderstrike right now. This is really unbearable. What did he say? Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they do. Do we have a forgiving heart like our master does? Do we have a forgiving heart as we hold authority within our home or within our work? Do we have forgiveness for those who are below us? Do we have forgiveness for those who are above us, who aren't the best managers, the best bosses, or the best authorities? Do we have forgiveness to offer them? Because Jesus in his this horrible moment in his existence. He said, Father, forgive them. When we think about the way that we work with an internal mindset, we will work differently. We will work heartily with, e, with an internal mindset. Just to paint you a picture of what this looks like practically, because this is kind of an ethereal sermon, it seems like, was yesterday between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., and actually, in reality, for some of you, is before 9 a.m. We told you 9 a.m., so you showed up early. That's on you. And we said 5 p.m., but some people stayed till past 7. And again, that's on you. But yesterday, as many of you, many of you in this room were with us together, hanging up curtains, putting up this giant screen, getting all the technical wires in the right place, mounting furniture, putting together furniture, cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning. For those of you there, you know you know, two years of dust will do that in construction. All of it was done, and it was like a taste of what the new earth will be like. Even though there's no worship music in terms of a band, even though there's technically no preaching of, word of, of God's word right now, it was still, for those who were to understand, it was like worshipful. Because we were doing something that was still an act of, of worship. We were working in a way that had the internal in mind. Yes, we were working to get this building ready and keep praying for it to happen. Please keep praying. But we were thinking about something bigger. All of us there, we didn't get paid for that work in terms of a monetary paycheck now. But we know when that work is laid before God on the Bema seat and is burnt up, it's not going to disappear. Instead, what's going to be left behind is a precious, something precious. It's going to be a good gift that God wants to reward us with. Why? It's because why we worked. 
We worked not just to have a nice, nicer building than the CYT, even though the CYT has been amazing to us. It's because of what God's going to do in that building. For all the lost people here in New Braunfels, the greater San Antonio, the greater Austin area, the hill country, are going to start driving to this location. We're not going to be crammed in here and having an overflow room over there and say we're going to be able to space out a little bit and hopefully get packed there, but we're going to have like 400 people in this auditorium. And we're going to know these lost people, they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear the, the, the bad news that God will judge their, their sins. Every wrong will be paid for by them, but God has offered his son in, his, in their stead. The good news that God lived in our behalf, died on our behalf, rose from the dead on our behalf, that the payment of our sin is paid in full. All we have to do is trust him. And because of our trust, we're going to repent. We're going to run from our sins, confess our sins, and seek his forgiveness. And there's going to be more people with us in this building. That's our mindset for the past eight, 10 hours yesterday. was like, I'm going to keep sweating. You know, Pastor Hayden and Pastor Evan, they're the authority right now. They're the masters, and I'm the slave. That's weird. All right. I'm the authority, and I'm the one responding to their authority. And all of us, we worked in harmony. I was, we were giving good direction. You guys were working so well, and it was harmonious. It was sacrificial. We could have been time with your you know, family. And for the moms who stayed back, you took care of the kids. You were as, working as much as we were, making sure that your husbands or spouses could be there to help us work. It was harmonious. It's because we were thinking eternally. We're thinking of the seats in there and the people sitting there and responding to the good news being preached, hearing the, the gospel and the songs that we sing and saying, we're going to pack out this room because we want to pack out heaven. That is what work can look like. The work you do for your occupation can look like that. You see masters and, you, and authority and employees to work together. The way you serve at this church can look like that. Your home can look like that. It's if we decide to say, I want to follow God's design for work and seek eternally from the homework I have for school to the lawn I have to mow to the taxes that are due next week, PSA, to the work that has to be done in my job. Think about how many people God will save through your work. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're just so humbled to be able to come and worship you this morning, to see your, your mighty hand already in this young church's life is such a joy to experience. But God, help us in the room, those who have authority, especially in our occupational work, and those who have no authority, that, Lord, we would obey you. The Lord, that we would stay on task, stay on the task at hand to make disciples, to glorify you with our work. God, help us to leave this room, be able to treat one another the way that you want us to treat us, beginning as soon as we're done praying. The, the people in this room, the people in our homes, and of course, the people that we meet and rub shoulders with at work. So God, help us to be heavenly minded so that we can be truly effective here and now as we look forward to eternity with you. So God, help us to keep that eternal mindset for every day of our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.